This podcast is sponsored by Milk and More. When I was little, I remember the glass bottles of milk arriving on the doorstep delivered by the milkman as he clinked down the road in his float. And it was so exciting. So I'm very excited now to be working with Milk and More, who are the country's largest milk and grocery doorstep delivery service. You know what? The old ideas are usually the best ideas because that model has now become even more important from a sustainability perspective in reducing single-use packaging. So now you can have your milk delivered, but also over 400 products from everything you need for breakfast, that's milk, breads, eggs, but also all of your regular grocery essentials and treats for your larder. You can have all of these delivered on repeat, which means you never have to run out. We're all busy, and that's the kind of time-saving hack that I just love. You place your order, and then everything's delivered outside of your front door, fresh for 7am. Like magic. You can even order up to 9pm the night before, so if you run out of milk for tomorrow morning's breakfast, and we've all been there, that's no problem. And that's not even the best bit. There's no minimum order, and it's free delivery. Honestly, milk and more are changing the game. I've got a discount code for you to receive 30% off your first order. Just use the code DISH30 and get yourself a little bit of doorstep magic. Thank you very much to Milk and More. Hi, before we start today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Some of you may well already listen, but if not, it's called Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio, and it's the number one most downloaded food podcast in America. Milk Street Radio travels the world to learn anything and everything that sparks their curiosity about food. So you'll hear stories about the world's strangest Michelin-starred meal, how some vineyards are renting falcons to protect their crops. You'll hear from some of your favorite food personalities, like the one and only Nigella Lawson. And you'll also learn how to make the perfect cup of coffee with YouTube star James Hoffman. There's a really great episode about food failures, which documents the time Gerber made baby food for adults. Another episode features TikTok forager Alexis Nicole Nelson, who explains why she traveled across state lines to make seaweed panna cotta. Plus, Christopher Kimball and Sarah Moulton speak with listeners and answer their questions about ingredients, techniques, and culinary mysteries. Like, why roasting a leg of lamb made one cooler's oven explode? (laughs) Ever wondered why your bread won't rise or your souffle falls flat? Well, Chris and Sarah have the answers. You'll also hear from a rotating cast of contributors. It's great. Take a listen at 177milkstreet.com slash radio. Or just search your podcast app for Milk Street Radio. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. Something always quite bittersweet at the end of August where obviously we're sad that the summer holidays are coming to an end, but then September feels quite back to schooly, even when you're a fully grown adult. (laughs) Just something about it feels quite exciting, don't you think? 
And I feel really excited because we have a brand new newsletter which is going to be launching very soon. It's going to be one gorgeous recipe emailed to you each week. It's always going to be something simple, seasonal, quick, and perfect for a weeknight supper. As many of you will know, I've been a chef for a very long time now, over a decade, which makes me sound like a dinosaur. It does also mean that I've got a lot of experience of cooking and developing recipes, and the food that I cook at home has always got to be maximum results for minimal effort because I'm tired and none of us have a lot of time, but we want inspiration for something quick and delicious. I'm still going to be sharing recipes online and on Instagram, but there's just something very personal and lovely to me about a newsletter. And I feel like this might be something really quite useful to a lot of people as I've mentioned it on Instagram just a few times and over three and a half thousand people have signed up so far. So that feels very exciting. And if you'd also like to be part of it, head to desertislanddishes.co and you can pop your email in the sign up box. There are several on the website and you'll be one of the first to get the brand new newsletter when it launches. So on to today's episode with the very lovely Poppy, who I'm sure is going to brighten your day. Just a thoroughly nice person who has had the most exciting couple of years. And I've said it before, but I will say it again, that I do just really, really enjoy saying good things happen to nice people. Her new book is out this week, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. So without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Poppy O'Toole. If you are on your phone during lockdown, there is no doubt at all in my mind that you will have seen today's guest across your screens teaching us how to make potatoes of all kinds of delicious ways. Poppy O'Toole, also known as Poppy Cooks, is a Michelin-trained professional chef who turned to TikTok upon losing her job in 2020 to fill some time. Three years later, Poppy has amassed over 4 million followers on TikTok and her second cookbook is about to be released. She's a judge on Junior MasterChef and as a self-proclaimed potato queen, she teaches her audience to make all sorts of potato delights as well as a whole host of other lovely recipes that aim to make cooking and food accessible to all audiences. Poppy has said... I realize I'm not very fancy. I like very standard food. I like to pretend I like oysters, but I don't. I like eating potatoes and cream, and that's about it. Welcome, Poppy. <laughs> I that's so... Because um, you forget sometimes when you say things, but that is so me. <laughs> that's like the most <laughs> sincere thing I've ever said in my life. Does that sum you up in a Absolutely, sentence? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I really do wish I loved really fancy things. I've just about gotten behind caviar at the minute. Um, because now I'm bougie. Uh, and it goes well with potatoes. It goes really well with potatoes yeah, and crisp. fresh. Mm. Mm. So yeah. good. But yes, <laughs> it's very true. Poppy, it's amazing to think about how much your life has changed over the last three years. Is this the kind of stuff that you dreamt about or is it even too big for dreams? Uh, yeah, I think it's too out of the... My realm of like dream was definitely like being a chef have a restaurant, have a book. Like, that was like, oh, my God, if I could do that, that, that would be more than I would ever imagine. Could never expect it. And you've achieved so many things and had so much success, but I wondered, how do you personally define success and has that changed over the last few years? I think, yes. So success, when I was in kitchens, would have been working 70 hours a week, making, you know, having my name above a door, like that would be, and it is success. 
genuinely that is success for a lot of people and it's incredible, but everything's changed. So success for me is now being able to spend time with people that I am closest to and being able to share life with them. Um, whereas I was very much career driven before that. Um, and it's just strange how you get put into different situations and how your perspective changes of mm. what, what happiness and success is. I suppose for me, success is happiness. Isn't that amazing? Like what an amazing position to be in that you can say that. I think so. The whole lockdown and everything was a terrible time for a lot of people. And I can't take away from that, but it's been life-changing for me in a very positive way. Mm. And I think to learn at a young age that definitions of success do change over time and that quite often when you reach the goal that you're dreaming of, you do redefine it in terms of actually other things are more important. Absolutely. And I think it's good to change. Mm. I think it's good to change that that line in the sand of where success is because then I might go, actually, no, I, I want to go back to having a restaurant. And then that that's successful as well. Or, yeah. or I want to just go and actually, I would love to have like a rescue dog farm. Like that would be another level of success. Yeah. Life is long, Poppy. Yes. There's time. Um, Michelle Rue says that you can learn a lot about a person by asking them about their favourite flavour of ice cream and why. So Poppy, what is your favourite flavour of ice cream? <laughs> I'm a mint choc chip. Mm. Oh, no, coconut. Ah. Oh. <laughs> no, okay, because I was always mint choc chip when I was younger, like full on diehard mint choc chip. And then I got into coconut ice cream milkshakes. And now a lot of the time I will go coconut over mint chocolate chip and it's not always on offer. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe coconut. I think there's something that's like, you know, like how people say vanilla is like vanilla. I they don't know. Do, they do say that. <laughs> yeah, vanilla is vanilla. But like people say it's quite boring, like, mm. or you're vanilla. Like it's, but it's not, it's incredible. Whereas coconut's got that kind of like base level of like creamy, mild flavor, but it is spectacular. So mm-hmm. I think coconut. Okay. See, Michelle was right. Uh, and the idea of going to a desert island, how do you think you'd get on? Are you resourceful? Are you good in your own company? Can you build a fire? Okay. Yes. I love my own company. I'm a, I was an only child until I was 14. So mm-hmm. I am happy to speak to the imaginary friends in my mind. I think I'd go full cave woman, get mm-hmm. right into it. I want to be down and dirty, hunting with my hands. There's be something I would quite enjoy I think maybe for about three days and then I'd go, oh, yeah. get me off. Where, <laughs> like, where I need to like, yeah, I need to like make an SOS sign here. <laughs> like, I need some help. I think I'd think I'd be really good at it, but I'd probably fail yeah. <laughs> terribly. No, Poppy, that's not the attitude. <laughs> I believe in you. I think you'd be, I think you'd be okay. I'd probably end up eating a poison berry. <laughs> I'd probably end up going, yeah, that looks like a raspberry. That will do. And then I'd die. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that joyful note... <laughs> You started your cooking career at the age of just 18, but let's go back a little bit Mm. further and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Um, Okay, so I am a 90s baby and my mom was um, a single parent and, you know, there was fads constantly, especially in the early 2000s. So when I was about I don't know, eight to eight to ten. I was also very large. Um, I'm a I'm a bigger girl. Always have been. I think I as soon as I hit eight, my weight and my age would go up in the same. So when I was eight, I was eight stone. When I was nine, I was nine, and it would go go go. Um, and it did that for most of my life. Um, um, and so she used to love one of these diet fads things. I don't know if I can say the name of it, but it was one of them. And she had all the magazines and all that sort of stuff. So she used to make 
And mum was a good cook. Uh, she used to make this smoked haddock that was poached in milk with mashed potatoes, but with no fat, just the milk that you, like, poached the, okay. the potatoes in and a bit of spinach. But I loved it. Like, I loved it. And I didn't realise it was, like, a, a oh. diet food. She was just trying to, like, make me look a little bit less tubby, which is fine. Um, and she was always on a diet. Not anymore. Well, no, she might be. She looks beautiful anyway. And I would request it every other night. Can I have the haddock? Can I have the haddock? And it's not something I think a, a normal eight-year-old would probably like be like, oh, yeah, I want the fish. <laughs> but it was just something that I loved. And I just remember it because after, after well, as I got older, she was like, yeah, that was from this diet magazine. And I was like, oh, really? I never would have, no. never would have imagined. And I made it again. I make it now, but I put a lot of butter and cream and just like, <laughs> just yeah. deliciousness into it. But it's still as lovely as it was when I was younger. Mm. So it's just something that brings back a lot of memories. Do you still have it a lot today? Yeah, it's, yeah. My, my partner doesn't like it as much. He's not into his fish as much as me. But that will be when he's not there, I'll make that for myself. Mm -hmm. I love that kind of food. Yeah. So when you were just 18, you landed an apprenticeship at Purnell's in Birmingham and you quickly rose up the ranks as you continued your cooking career in London. You became the junior sous chef at J.P. Morgan and then at Albright, the women's members club in Mayfair. Tell me a little bit about that first apprenticeship, because 18 is still very young. And I'm guessing lots of your friends might have been going to college or university yeah. and definitely weren't working in really hard jobs yet. Did you feel like you'd been thrown in the deep end? It was a weird one because I felt too old to be doing an apprenticeship. Um, really? Yeah, because by the time I actually started it, I think I just turned 19. So I, you had to do like a six-week college course to be like, oh, will you actually... I mean, it is difficult going to a Michelin star restaurant from, I was working in a pub, like, you know, it's very different <laughs> ends of the hospitality spectrum. Um, and so by the time I got in, I was 19 and I was with people who were trying to get this apprenticeship who were 16, 15. And I was like, oh, I'm too old for this. Like I am, like, I shouldn't be doing this. I should have already been working. Like I should have, I was like, I should just go back to this pub and go back and work. And I'd failed all my A-levels. I'd failed, I'd just about passed my GCSE, I'd failed my A-levels. And I was like, this seems a little bit too much. And once I got into it, I absolutely loved it. I loved the working hours, which is weird. You know, all my friends were going off to uni and stuff and and kind of just chilling. Not chilling, it's hard work, but like, you know, they were going out every weekend and I'd be like, no, sorry, I can't come, I'm working all night. But I found something really enjoyable about it and I think I liked the structure and the routine and mm. the... You knew exactly what you were going into. Whereas I was working in pubs before, you'd never know what, like, you never know what you're going to go into. Is Has a chef who's just been there left you in the absolute mess? Um, or is it, you know, is it going to be a smooth day? Whereas going into a kitchen like that, it's, so, it's like clockwork. It's like a well-oiled machine. Everyone knows their place. Everyone knows a job and you crack on, um, which was the kind of organisation I'd never had. Oh, I'm not that kind of person. I just, I'm not now. When I have to do it myself, I don't do it. But when I'm working for someone else, I enjoy that kind of strict routine. And so had you spent the whole time at school thinking or knowing that you would go into food? Had that always been what you wanted to do? Yeah, food was the only subject that I actually did well in. Not well enough to pass, but I did well okay. in. <laughs> Oh, so you did it for GCSE? Yeah, I, well, I got a B, GCSE. That was my highest grade. Uh, everything else was Cs, so I passed everything. But then for the A-levels, I did hospitality and food tech. And instead of doing my work, 
I loved the cooking bit. I did everything up to the right end and I had like one bit of coursework left that would finish off the, the projects and instead I just went on holiday. It's easily done, Poppy. Well, not really. It's just <laughs> stupid, isn't it? It's like, I've done all this work for two years and then just went, oh, I'm going to go turkey instead. Like, it's just stupid. But it, I mean, it doesn't matter in the end, thankfully, because I still went on and got jobs that I wanted to get and I probably would have got the same if mm. I'd had... Uh, Do you think you knew that and that's why I, you didn't? I really enjoyed working. Whilst I was doing everything, I worked two jobs, three jobs at one point. I preferred going to work. So I always thought, even in, in hospitality, it doesn't shouldn't say this, but it doesn't really matter what you've got because mm. they just need people to work and to be molded to what is happening in that in that space. Mm. Um, so it's it didn't really cross my mind that I needed it too much. Yeah. Um, it would have been nice to finish it. It was like a lot of work there to just leave, but oh wow. I feel envious that you found what you wanted to do when you were so young because I think for lots of people maybe they know from a really young age that they want to do medicine or they want to be a vet. And so often it's a vocation that they feel called to. But I do think it's quite rare to discover exactly what you want to do from such a young age. Yeah. Was was there ever anything else that you thought about? I didn't see it as a job that I was going to have. I just thought it's a job for right now. And, oh, I okay. would, and I'd work it out. That's my kind of, that's my whole mantra is it wing it and see what happens. I kind of, I suppose when you're younger, you are kind of pushed into like, it needs to be a good job and it needs to pay well and you need to know your career and has it got a good career path? Are you going to, and like hospitality doesn't have that. It doesn't, well, a lot of people say it doesn't. I think it does. I think you can do a lot of things in, in hospitality. Um, so I think I was a little bit embarrassed or a bit like, oh, it's not going to be good enough. Okay, so you so don't want to say... I didn't want to commit and be like, no, this is what I want to do because I thought people would be like, why? Yeah, especially if you say that kind of thing to the wrong person, like yeah. the wrong type of teacher. Yes, yeah. But thankfully, I had a really good um, food tech teacher called Mrs. Gilmore, um, who I still talk to now, okay, she lives in France. Um, and she was like, because I was like, I don't, like, I'm not going to see my friends. I knew I was quite in tune with the fact that it was going to be isolating in some ways and you don't get a social life and it's not like great pay um and she was like yeah but you get to build a friendship group inside the kitchen you know you have a family unit there and she kind of like helped me openly it sounds really, it sounds really deep it's not that deep but she helped me just go like yeah actually I'll, I'll I will be a chef I do think it's so strange that we're pushed at such a young age yeah. to know what we want to do. Like it takes people till they're like late twenties sometimes yeah. to, re or thirties or forties or whatever. But it's it, there is an expectation that by the time you finish school, you should have it all mapped out. Yeah, and it's, it's just so unrealistic. I think it makes people unhappy because mm. they go into anything or the thing they think they want to do, and then you're just stuck. Mm. And it's good now because you can see society changing where people leave jobs after a year or two and they just get the information that they need and then they leave and they go and do something else, which yeah. I think is good. I don't think you need to have loyalty to a company anymore unless it's something you really want to do. Let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook. <laughs> okay, so um, I was thinking about this and I think, yes, there might have been like an omelette somewhere and toast and stuff. But the one that I vividly remember, I think when people, when my family also went, oh, I think she might like cooking and eating. Um, I used to go shopping with my nan a lot. And my nan was a big influence in my life. She was a big cook um, and kind of taught me that food is like a gift to people and you can show your appreciation and your love through food. And one day she picked up a chicken put it in the in the trolley and then I saw like this mini chicken 
And I was like, what is this mini chicken? And I must have been, because my nan passed away when I was 10, so I must have been six. Must have been around that age. But I, she always had me in the kitchen anyway. But I was like, what's that? And it was a poussin. And I was like, I need that poussin. <laughs> I need this tiny chicken. I don't think you understand. And I was like, and I ran back and I went and got chanterelle carrots. And I was like, I need mini carrots. I need everything mini, new <laughs> potatoes, everything. And I was like, I'm going to make a roast dinner. Like, and I was like, it needs to be tiny. So we got this poussin. She let me get everything. Um, and I followed her step by step on that Sunday, making her roast dinner for the family. And then I sat there with a mini version of it. That's it's just a, stupid. Just no, absolutely. That's adorable. And I think that was, you know, when my mom came back going, why on earth is Poppy making a poussin? <laughs> <laughs> like, why on earth have you let the six-year-old roast a poussin and eat it? But I ate the whole thing. It was great. And I think that was... I remember that because I just remember being so excited about doing something mini. Like, it was the best thing ever. And I think that's probably why I got into um, fine dining. So everything's just miniature mm. versions of the big, big meal. You've described 70-hour work weeks, whether you like it or not, as the standard in the restaurants you worked in. And a lot mm. gets talked about these professional kitchens so often portrayed in Hollywood films and hit TV shows. What was your reality of working in kitchens like that? There is some truth in some of the, like... Hollywoody stuff. Um, and I think it's all changing. I think it's getting a lot better. I think people are realizing that you can't be throwing pans at people and shouting and verbally abusing people to a point of a mental breakdown, which is, you know, valid. <laughs> Thank God they realized. Um, but, you know, there'd be days where I'd come home and be like, I do not want to go to work tomorrow because I know it's been a bad service tonight. We all got told off and, you know, I, the anxiety of having to go back into work the next day. Um, luckily I was never fully on the end of being told off because I'd watch other people and go, I'm not going to make that mistake. Like there's no chance I'm going to do what he's done. Um, it, it, it can be a toxic place for mm. men and women. It's, it, but again, it is changing. And I think the more people that talk about it, the more people, um, understand that. And I think after lockdown as well, I think a lot of people have gone, I'm, why would I want to go back into that? Why would I want to go back and not see my family, not see my friends and get shouted at all day? Mm. That's not a place. That, like, so I want res mutual respect when I go to work, which I think is completely valid. Yeah. Were you often the only girl? Yes. Yeah. Which I didn't mind at all, actually. I don't have any qualms about it. It's um, I quite enjoy just being a like confident, cocky woman in a kitchen um, and telling people to shut up, you know, if, if, if I need to. I've always been that kind of, Bolshe, which has helped in a career in the kitchen. But a lot of women in kitchens experience a lot worse than I did. Mm. And I experienced sexual harassment and kind of the misogyny that comes with it. It's still, it still, it happens. But I was lucky enough to have a really supportive network at home. I had a, my, I've been with my partner for 13 years. So, you know, he's always just like been there and it's never been something that has gotten me down. But it is there. It, it happens. It's just, mm. it's very strange. It's very strange because you kind of, I, at some points, would join in with being, like, misogynistic because mm. you've got, because you're in a kitchen full of blokes doing it or they show you video and you just go, oh, yeah, and you don't think twice about it. But looking back, being 19 or 20 or 25 in kitchen and seeing, you're like, I was a young, a young woman. Like, it's just weird. Yeah. But... It's gonna. It's all changing because I think women want to be in kitchens, and it, it, it. If you look at it, 
in the home space, it is a woman's place. I know, it's but then men strange. take it over. Mm. Very so there's a weird kind of like divide. It's like if you're doing it at home, it's a woman's place. If you're doing it at work, it's a man's like Yeah. It's surely it's strange. not. Surely No, it is a very strange thing that. You've described a time where you asked to take the day off work to see your grandpa when he was very ill and you were told no. And at the time you just said okay and you didn't yeah. go and see him but that looking back that's obviously not okay when I read that I completely sympathized because I had a very similar experience and I think it's hard to understand from the outside unless you've been in that environment what it's like because it's all about the team and your cogs mm-hmm. as you said in a well-oiled machine and so you can't just be ill or take the day off because if you do there's no one to replace you so it means yeah. someone else will be working two people's jobs And it's just so intense. Do you miss any part of that? There is a little bit. I think the adrenaline rush of doing a service is there wouldn't be chefs if people didn't enjoy it. Yes, there are bad points because you're so so constantly together that you kind of like blame each other if something like you'll be like you weren't here but that's that's the kind of guilt that comes from like missing going to see granddad or missing friends parties is because it's, it is like a guilt trip sort of thing and you should never ask. Um, but when you've had a really good service, there's nothing better than being with these people. It's a twisted, twisted mind <laughs> game in a kitchen, but there's something really lovely about it. I can't sit here and say I didn't enjoy it. I loved it. I wouldn't have done it for 10 years if I didn't enjoy it. Mm. Um, and there's just some weird politics in there that are, that is changing. I love the thrill, the adrenaline rush of being on service and get when it goes well. <gasps> the bliss and everything just works and everyone's happy and everyone has a beer after and it's just like we had the best service ever. Let's do it again. You leave feeling more energetic than you would normally on at one o'clock in the morning after yeah. a 12 hour shift or whatever. Well, yeah, and then you can't go straight to and sleep. You can't go to sleep. You no. just, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if lockdown hadn't happened and you hadn't discovered social media or social media mm. hadn't discovered you, do you think you would have carried on your whole career working in restaurants and sort of maybe emulated someone like Angela Hartnett in her career in, ter- um, in terms of having your own restaurant? Or, I, wish, I wish I yeah. could have gotten that 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 big. But um, yes, yeah, I would have stayed. I had no other... I never, ever thought about doing anything else. I love it. I love cooking. I think there would have been a point where maybe I would have gone to do it. I was looking at like buying little cafes and stuff, yeah. just something really chill. So when I went from working in like fine dining, I went to go and work at JP Morgan, which was a client fine dining like restaurant, but it was Monday to Friday, weekends off, evenings off. Mm. And after like a year and a half of that, I was like, I want to go back into like, I want to go back. So then I went to the Albright, which was like seven days a week, like no time off, like this is full on in. And so like, I would have been like, oh yeah, I have a little cafe. And I'd be like, no, 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 I need a 20-seater fine dining restaurant. I need to do, like, there's something about, I just, I get, not bored, but I always, I think this, the probably the line of success. I, I always want to do something more, mm. more, oh, I've got more spare time. Let's do something else. Um, just never stopping. You need a challenge. Need a challenge, yeah. So Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. That's the best dish you've ever eaten. I'm a simple woman with simple pleasures. The best dish I've ever eaten, which blew my mind, was French onion soup. And the story of this is um, I had started working in this Michelin-starred restaurant in Birmingham and I was an apprentice and I was about 19 at this point or maybe 20. And 
they got an invite for some people to go to Tattinger in Spain for champ- in the champagne and, and go in. And I think they were like, well, you're the apprentice. Like, you don't really need to be here. Um, you go. <laughs> Amazing. And there was like the two, me and another apprentice, the other guy who won this apprenticeship. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like, I've just got into this and we're going to champagne and I don't even <laughs> drink wine. Like, I don't like sparkling wine. The most like classy thing I'd ever had was like a porn star martini at that point. Like, you know, <laughs> I wasn't into it. I would just got into like this fine dining scene. And um, we got off the Eurostar and we went straight to this place called Terminus de Nord. De Nord? I'm not very good at French. And I was like, I'll have French onion soup. And it, I honestly, I can't even explain the kind of joy that was happening in my mouth, that it was unbelievable. And I was like, because I've never had it. I'd never, I knew about it, but it was just incredible. And I, when, that was when I was like, oh, this is really, this is absolutely delicious. And it's so simple. And it's such, what is it, like old peasant food, isn't it? But it is so, so good. And I loved it. And I went back to Paris last year and I was like, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. And we went and we had it and it was just, I didn't, I was almost scared to have it again in, in the case same it, place. yeah, 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 oh. in case it wasn't as good, but it was just as good. And it was just, it's just comforting and lovely and just delicious. Mm. So that, very simple, but yeah, that's my favorite. It's just, yeah, just one of my favorite things I've ever eaten. Mm. And food like that, that is simple. I think it just, like, it just shows that yeah. things don't have to be complicated. No, it's timeless. COVID struck in early 2020, and lockdowns meant that you lost your job. This was obviously a really scary time. And I saw a video that you posted, which was really emotional. And you seemed so young and uncertain and not the super confident Poppy that we've come to know through through your videos. I know that you grew up being passionate about food, but did you ever grow up dreaming of becoming a TV chef? Um, I suppose there was a little bit of something there. My, Like I said, my nan and my mom, big cooks, big food people um and so we would me and my nan would sit and watch um keith floyd delia nigella james martin jamie oliver we'd watch all the cooking shows um and we'd sit there with cooking books like cookbooks and we just go through recipes watching recipes oh that looks nice i remember when i would be cooking in my nan's kitchen i would talk at the same time like i was uh, like i was Keith Floyd, basically, because he used to drink wine and everything. And I, I'd be there with like a Ribena going, yes, and now we're in here doing this. I don't think it was something that I thought I was ever going to do, but it's something that I enjoyed mimicking. Mm. Um, and I suppose that's still still there somewhere. Yeah, I think there are two types of children. I think you're either the type that pretends to have your own cooking show <laughs> or you're not. But how can you stand in the kitchen mm. and cook something and not pretend? Like... It's just impossible. It is impossible. So you initially started posting general recipe videos using your experience as a professional chef to create easy recipes that people could cook at home. But it was potatoes that really (laughs) changed your life. And more specifically, it was your video series where you did 25 days of potatoes. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so I, um, I did a potato video in maybe September... Um, and I hadn't actually planned to record it. I didn't record it. I just cooked a meal for me and my partner. And he went, these potatoes are really good. You need to go back and make them again and record them. I was like, oh, I was like I've just made dinner. I really can't be bothered. I'll do it another day. He's like, no, do it now because you won't do it otherwise. Like, Fine. So I did this potato video. And it was just crispy cubes of potatoes. Nothing crazy. Nothing spectacular. 
but proper crispy little cubes. Put a bit of parmesan on there, a little bit of parsley, a little bit of garlic. Um, and it was the first video I had that did a hundred, no, a million views ever. Like that was like, like my other videos were getting like 20K views, which is huge. I was like, oh my God, I'm a star. Um, but then <laughs> this was like, it got a million views and I was like, okay, well people, love potatoes so a week later I did another little potato video and that did really well I didn't get a million but it did really well so then when we went into another lockdown in November I was like well potatoes seem to be doing really well let's just do 20 I was like I'm sure I've got a repertoire of 25 potatoes somewhere let's go for it so we just kind of did these 25 days of potatoes and so when I started I think I had a hundred and something thousand followers on on TikTok which was huge uh, a week later, I had 200,000 followers. Um, by the end of it, I had over a million. <gasps> and it was just, like, unbelievable. I, I, and I was just like, what's going on? But I didn't realise there was such a a need for potato content. <laughs> like, there was just everyone needs... I think it's so comforting. Mm. And everybody knows potatoes. And they're not a threatening food in any way. They're like just tasty and simple and cheap and delicious. Mm. I've just described myself. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the delicious part. Um, when I described that just then about the potatoes changing your life, I realised that might sound melodramatic. And if there's anyone listening who isn't on TikTok and doesn't partake in social media, it's not just a vanity thing of gaining followers. The more followers you have, the more you as a brand are worth and therefore the more that you can earn through partnerships. So it really is a big deal and can completely change your life. Mm -hmm. Did that happen overnight? Like what happened once you'd reached a million followers? It, there was a change. So um, up until that point, I wasn't working. I had a little bit of money saved just to pay my half of the rent. And I just was like, that's as long as we can pay that for a little bit, we can see what happens. And I'd had a couple of um, partnerships come through through some different companies. And, you know, you were looking at maybe £100 a video, £50 for a video, which I was like, yeah, absolutely. This is incredible. Free money. Like, it felt like free money <laughs> to be like, yeah, I'm going to cook anyway, so I'll cook it. And then once I hit over a million followers, the numbers went up. It was more like £500 a video. And, and, and that's what makes a huge difference. And also you then get exposure, like more people mm. want to work with you because the followers will like the video. And it's just, it's a huge industry. It's a massive industry and something I never had been involved in or seen or knew of before that. You know, I had social media, but for my friends from school, like nothing, nothing like this. Not for potatoes. Not for potatoes, <laughs> not for my own company like not for me do you know what I mean it's yeah. just bizarre so what kind of recipes were on your 25 days of potatoes oh okay so we had um roast potatoes chips jacket potato but like I was doing something with all of them so it would be uh a, this jacket potato which I was inspired by you know the Korean garlic bread mm. where they cut it into like a star shape and it's got like cream cheese and sugar and butter and yeah and so I did that as a jacket potato kind of just took that and put it, it it's Honestly, if you're making a jacket potato, try it because it is absolutely delicious. Um, so I was just taking these ways of cooking potatoes, but trying to make them a little bit different, do something different with them. And then uh, the main thing that really got the million followers was I did a compilation video of all the potatoes that I'd done. And I spoke over it and just made like a cult. <laughs> So I just said, hello and welcome to Potato TikTok. <laughs> and that was like in the middle of the 25 days and it got like a million people overnight. 
What? Yeah. That one video? Mm-hmm. Wow. Just, just honestly bizarre. It was... Do you ever think back about moments like that and think you would have ended up where you are now ultimately, but like one video changed everything. And what happens if you hadn't have posted it's, that? It's or? really weird because I was doing it and because my, my partner works social media, he was like, I don't know about that voiceover. I was like, he's, he's like, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't sound like you. You're talking in a posh voice. And I was like, yeah, but I think it's quite, I think it could be quite funny. And it's a bit like making a cult. And we were going, mm, maybe not. And we were like, nah, let's not post it. And then we were like, no, you know what? We've got the content. Let's just post it. It was like those small little domino effects mm. or butterfly or whatever it is that could have changed everything. Um, like like a sliding if, doors moment. Yeah. If I'd done like a bread recipe, maybe that would have been what had kicked off. It's just very strange. Just, it's, I don't know what it was that all clicked into place, but something did, and I'm forever grateful for it. I think you've said that there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of the fact that people love watching cooking videos, but they're still we're still not sure how many of those people actually go on to cook the dishes, which yeah. I think is so interesting. So if you aren't thinking about cooking the end result, what do you think it is about the cooking videos that people love so much? I think it just... I do it as well. I think it kind of... It's almost like punishing yourself uh, because you get a little bit hungry when you watch it, but you're like, oh, but that looks good. It's a bit like, oh, I'd really fancy that, but I'm never going to make it. I think there is something in that's like pain and pleasure at the same time. Mm. Um, and, also and they're very satisfying. Very satisfying, very therapeutic, I think, because I think a lot of people do take solace in cooking, mm. but a lot of people don't have the time to do it because um, some people find it very, very relaxing and just like to take a few hours cooking, but some people just can't do it. So getting to watch someone else maybe achieve that yeah. is is satisfying enough. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Let's pause there and talk about the most important question of the day. Ooh. Poppy, what is your favourite sandwich? I am a club sandwich mm. fan. Uh, anywhere I go, if there is a club sandwich on the menu, I have to try it. Yeah. It has to be, even if I have it on the table as for everyone to give it a, a try, because I'm always intrigued, because it's different everywhere. And I love a turkey club. Mm. Uh, turkey club with bacon. I'm never sure about the egg. I never know if I want... Some people have egg. I think there's something quite telling about how a hotel or a, a restaurant does their club. Because you can have it... It could be a beef. It could be anything. There's no rules to a club sandwich. Mm. Do you know why it's called a club sandwich? Isn't it from the members clubs? It was like no. golf clubs or something. It's what better it? than that. It's chicken lettuce under bacon. No. Yep. I yeah, thought I... I've blown your mind. That's ruined everything <laughs> oh, for no, me. No, because I literally thought it could be anything. I was like... I think it can. I think it can, but that's how it initially... No way. Okay, that's quite... Well, well that, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that reaction, but yeah. Chicken, lettuce, I, under bacon. Yeah. It might just be folklore, but I like it. I like it. I like yeah, it. I do like that. Yeah. Also, something about a club sandwich with the little cocktail sticks which are annoying but then it's not a club without them yeah and I, I always end up doing like if we go anywhere me and my partner yes I love going exploring and trying different food and everything but sometimes you know when you just sit in the hotel room yeah. and you just order a club sandwich yeah. it's and the a, only thing you have to order on room service yes yeah. they're never terrible well yeah. if they are that's really disappointing yeah <laughs> yeah it's true 
I think looking back at the videos, as well as all the amazing food content that you've done, you can also see this really big change in you as a person. You gain in confidence, you show your personality. Did you feel like as you got more and more followers, it gave you permission to be more yourself? Um, no. <laughs> I would actually say I probably get more nervous now mm. putting out content with more of me in it because there's more people to judge it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I like to think I'm a little bit like Beyonce because uh, she's my idol. But there's a little bit of a Sasha Fierce, Poppy Cooks situation where, yes, I am exactly that person, but there's a little bit of like a... That goes out there and is is exactly me. It is, it's like there's no... It's not like a different person. That's, you know, I am stupid and mildly funny and love cooking. But I just leave it there yeah. and it goes there and I don't really think about it again because um when I did it just it like blew my mind it was too much I kind of have to kind of we I say with my friends and my family like, big mac large fries which means just over your head I don't know where this expression came Wait, from what is the go. expression big mac large fries big oh, mac big. large fries <laughs> you just gotta just like let it go like everyone orders a big mac large fries <laughs> I don't know why I don't know where it started but it's a thing um and yeah so I'm like, okay, fine, I can just put it out and, and I, I can be myself. But there's also a little, there also is that kind of uh, nervousness. But four million people, not to freak you out even further, but there's just no possible way that you can imagine what those would all look like assembled together. Yeah. So it's understandable that you would worry about that many people seeing what you're doing. Yeah, it's 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 um it's really exciting. Can't take that away. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. It's a huge achievement. But um. Yeah, I just, I just kind of let it go. Yeah. There are so many positives to the world of social media and things to be celebrated, but we do know that there are downsides as trolling or negative comments, and it can have a real effect on people's mental health. Has what you've described as, as creating this barrier, is that something that you've developed over time to deal with those negative sides of it? Or, or has your experience of it in general been very positive? It is mainly positive. Um, I think, yes, I have made this kind of barrier a little bit because when I first started I actually had to go and get therapy mm. because I have never been criticized so much after after the, the everything huge growth off. yeah not even that it was a lot but I, I don't like getting told off in a kitchen is done and you never think about it again because mm. you have to carry on service or whatever which is fine um, and it's legitimate for a reason like yes. it's for service and you did something yeah. wrong but there were you know when because when you start, there's no criticism. Everyone's very, very happy. Everyone loves what you're doing. And then suddenly more people see it. And then obviously they're going to criticize. It's fine. Um, and that's kind of the internet. And that's people in general. But there was a point where I was like, oh, is this really what I want to do? So I had to go and just... Therapy in general for myself, because I think everyone needs it. And I think it's a really good thing to do. Um, but also to help with this, being able to take people not liking me. Because it's sounds really big-headed, but I haven't necessarily been exposed that many people to have people not like me yeah. that much um, or criticise me for, like, having a dirty nail. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> leave me alone. If it was someone that I knew and was like, I would listen and, and take it on board. But a lot of the time I just... And also now I love it because the, these troll people, <laughs> these, I call them troll people, um, they are... It, it's It's quite funny what they want to pick up on and it's just like weird like why yeah. I think a lot of people say oh ignore it they just want attention and yes but 
we've got to stop it at some well, point. Well, yeah, sometimes you have to say yeah. something back. You have to. I, I think it's worth it sometimes. I'm just trying to be like, this isn't right what you're doing. You should stop saying these sort of things online. But then I've got some lovely, like, people in my audience and in my kind of, not fans, but, you know, who follow me, who want to look after me, which is lovely, but it's... That's when it gets into like, oh, it's almost on the verge of bullying this, but I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say you need to stop saying horrible things to people because it's going to come and bite you one day. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't say that to someone in the street. No, so why are you saying it to... very bizarre that we've got to the kind of place where people yeah. feel like they're able to say that. Let's pause there onto more positive things and talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Yeah, it's potatoes. Through wanting and also through um, just because I have to make a lot of them. I make a lot of roast potatoes. I think roast potatoes are my favourite potato in the world to eat. Um, So I do a lot of variations of them. So there'll be like a shallot with some white wine. There'll be a lemon potato. There's a marmite potato. There's a... I do like... I've probably made like 30 variations of roast potatoes. So sometimes when I'm making them at night for dinner, it will just be a bowl of roast potatoes. <laughs> My boyfriend, Tom, he put on four stone in lockdown because of how much I was making him eat. Like, it's hell. <laughs> four stone of potatoes. <laughs> He's. We've recently both been like, we need to stop. Like, so now the, roast, the bowls of roast potatoes for dinner are calming down a little bit. But it's, yeah, I think that's... <laughs> It's a bit of a cop-out answer, but it is one of the meals that I make the most. Sounds amazing. Can I come for supper? (laughs) So many amazing things have happened to you over the last three years. And you've said your publishers actually had already approached you about your first book before you really went viral. So you were doing well, but you hadn't reached the millions yet. And in a way, you said that actually gave you more confidence because they obviously saw something in you before you had this big audience. Yeah, they got to me before Potatoes. And it was just amazing because I used to do a lot of um, live streaming on TikTok as well. And a lot of cook-alongs, which I I really need to get back into them because they're so much fun. And I remember I did a souffle on there on live and it completely flopped. Like the whole thing sank in. And there was like... Did you immediately press stop? No, no, no. I was like, I've got to go with it. A little bit like the um, uh, Saturday Kitchen thing. It's like you've got to just roll with it at this point. So someone from the publisher had like seen some of the uh, lives and enjoyed them and thought, and it was just, that was like, okay, so there's potential here even outside of the potatoes that happened after. Um, And that was, because you don't expect anybody to be watching or caring. And I think that's, you know, that kind of barrier thing. Like I don't ever expect anyone to be singing it. And then I look on my page and I'm going, oh, that's got like, oh, yeah, it's got 100,000 views. And I'm like, I don't keep track of it that much. Did you used to? More so, yeah, more so. I used to read every comment and and then then I started to be like, nah, leave that. I think someone, I can't remember who, but they gave really good advice that if you're going to believe the good stuff you have to also believe the bad stuff and so it's better just not to read any of it and I think that is probably quite good advice yeah absolutely you're a regular now on our tv screens often on Saturday kitchen quite (laughs) infamously last time I think and a judge on junior master chef tell us a little bit about what that's like because I think for a lot of people, the security of cooking in their own kitchen at home, knowing you can do lots of takes and you do your own editing, but then transitioning to actual TV is a really big step. Did that come naturally? Do you get nervous? It sounds really big-headed, but I don't get nervous because I kind of enjoy the chaos of it. 
I think one thing about being in working in kitchens that you learn to um, it sounds terrible, lie your way out of things or to make things sound much better than they are. Yeah. Um, so like, for instance, I remember burning a caramel once and I just said, I went to my sous chef to be like, oh, could you try this? And I knew it was burnt. I knew I'd gone too far, but we hadn't got time to make another one. And I was like, I've gone a little bit further because I think it gives it a bit more of a stronger taste. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good, that does. So you learn, <laughs> you learn how to make situations work for you very quickly because if you make mistakes, you get told off and I never wanted to get told off. So going into live television, especially live, something about it is like, you've got to think on your feet. Everything is so quick. And if a mistake happens, you've got to make it look like it hasn't happened, apart from when you actually swear on national TV. Um, <laughs> that's something I couldn't get away from, but I didn't know that. Um, but like, I remember watching John Turow, you know, his, his thing set on fire on this morning or yes, something. Yes, I did see like, that. it's brilliant. <laughs> like, as long as no one's getting hurt, but it he is wasn't, brilliant. But he wasn't aware for ages. <laughs> that was... <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. It was, it was all happening me. behind him. But I just love the calamities that can happen. And, and I think there's something in that that I just enjoy the chaos of it. Um, when it comes to like Young MasterChef, it's, that is different because I am still in a position where I'm like, why are people listening to my judgment on their food? That's a bit of like a, a pinch me like, oh, should I, should I be judging these people's food? Because they're probably better cooks than me. And I'm just like, ah. Um, so that's major imposter syndrome. Oh, everything in my life is major imposter syndrome. I have just, again, learned to just bear, big mat large fries it, bury it down somewhere <laughs> else. I'll pay the therapist to sort that out in a few years. But it's when it was like, okay, we're rolling. And it is a little bit like you have to just turn it on. And I, and does, you can't you can't have an off day. You can't be like, oh, I'm a bit tired today. <laughs> like you yeah. have to just go. Um, and I think it's incredible. I, I've because this is a whole new world. Would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? I don't know because I love new people. I love strangers. But then I'm an introvert with my friends and family. When I'm uncomfortable, I'm at my best. Okay. And I'm go, go, go. And I'm like, woo, this is exciting. And then when I'm very comfortable with people, I'll just sit in silence. Okay. That's that's Which, how you know you've broken through and you've become one of Poppy's really great friends. She just doesn't talk to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't <laughs> even reply to messages. <laughs> that you know you're in the inner circle. Yeah, that's when you're really in. The sixth desert island dish. Poppy, what's your go-to dinner party dish? So I have only recently started having people over for dinner because I used to be at work all the time, so I never do it. Um, but I'm not into like a sit down three course. Everyone has one plate. I love family style. I think that's I think it's a massive trend as well at the minute, isn't it? That everyone likes sharing things. So I've always done paella. Ooh, paella or paella is the best thing to do because you can do so much of it, and I just love that everyone just gets in. And I, I spent a lot when I was younger. Um, we spent a lot of time in Spain on holidays and it was like I used to love watching people eat because the Spanish culture of eating is completely different to the UK. You know, they eat at nine o'clock and they don't stop eating until 11. Like there's like hours that go by and they just order little tapas and it just keeps coming and it's just, it's all as and when. And I love that for dinner parties or for having people over because I think it's just really exciting. And also it gives you a chance to kind of relax as well when you're hosting because you can have lots of different things out, leave people to do whatever they want, have your little plates on the side and everyone just jumps in. And that's what I enjoy. I enjoy that. And then when you get that little crispy bit at the bottom of the paella, mm, that's so that's the little chef's bit when everyone's left and you can pick it off in the in the kitchen. Would you normally serve a pudding? I love making puddings because I used to I used to be on pastry, and I really enjoy it. But I find 
they're so time consuming. And if you don't get the measurements right, it always goes wrong. That's pressure. Um, I love a banoffee pie for a pudding because it's so easy. Yes. And I just get the tin of the caramel that's already done and you just whip up cream and you can go and even put it into just a pastry case. I don't even do the, the cracker bit. It's like old school nostalgic, but everyone really yeah. enjoys it when you put a banoffee pie. The days before you could get the tin when you had to boil. Boil it, yeah. Like, that was... Oh, that would be strenuous. Stressful. Yeah, that's yeah. too much. Because they can explode and everything. Aren't yeah. They? And they're like <laughs> boiling hot metal. Yeah. yeah. On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. What is your most treasured cookbook? Oh, okay. One that I've always gone to throughout my cooking career, and even when I was at school, was Gordon Ramsay's Fast Food. Mm. Um, and I remember, I think, I think my mum got it from a charity shop years and years and years ago, and I've nicked it. It's mine now. And I love that style of cooking. It was so accessible and attainable for a lot of people um, and delicious. All of the recipes work, which sometimes you pick a recipe book and you can't understand. Like, even I can't understand some recipes. I'm like, that's really confusing. Whereas that, it's not. I love that book. And it's all the pages are stuck together now because I've used it so many times. But also, because I did get to go and meet Nigella the other day. I've now got a signed book from... So she... I think that might be a prized... It's the how to eat. And the worst thing is I'm such a fangirl. And I was just trying to be really cool and be like, hi, lovely to see you. But I was just... You know, your words are just going... And I just couldn't get it out. I couldn't speak properly. And she was talking about how she's excited about the book. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, that's nice. Oh, it's just... That's another moment where I'm like, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I should not be here at all. I shouldn't be anywhere in the vicinity. <laughs> That's simply not true, Poppy. We're on to the final seventh desert Ooh. island dish. What is the last dish you'd choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? So, I'm a big fan of American-style food. It's just huge. And I'm thinking, if we're going off to a desert island, we need to bulk up on the carbs mm. and the fat at this point because I'm probably going to starve and die. Okay, we'll go for French onion soup to start then. Yeah. Let's just get that in um, because that will be nostalgia. It'll be like, oh, this is it now. <laughs> we've, co- <laughs> the co- we've come to the end. Then I would have, right, mm. buffalo hot wings, some like sweet wings, <laughs> a lot of wings, some lemon pepper wings, uh, potato skins with bacon, cheese and spring onion. Mozzarella sticks. This is just one course. Uh, mozzarella <laughs> sticks. Some little little short rib bites. Barbecue-y style. Yeah, that would be just like pure meat and potatoes. <laughs> and then I think dessert. I'm a really big fan of ice cream. Ice cream is my go-to dessert on anything. But I love a Mr. Whipping. If I hear an ice cream van, I'm running. <laughs> Anywhere, anytime. I got off the train the other day and there was an ice cream van. And I was like, this is not an appropriate time for an ice cream. But I had to get one. Yeah. But they're so expensive. I know, they're not 99p anymore, are they? Like three quid for an mm. ice cream. Anyway, I bought it anyway, because I was like, I cannot resist. It's one of those things that if if it's there, I have to have. Mm. And otherwise, I will think about it continuously until I just go and binge something else. So yeah. I have to have the ice cream. You don't so, want to look back and regret the ice creams you didn't eat. Absolutely. That would be probably my last thought, was that <laughs> I should have had more ice cream. Um, <laughs> so I'd have a Mr. Whippy with a flake, but I have to have the lime sauce, the green one, I have to have the strawberry and the bubblegum. No chocolate sauce on there. Disgusting. It has to have every single sauce on it, apart from the chocolate one. I didn't even know they came with sauces. <gasps> no one 
ever has the sauces on a Mr. Whippy, but you have to have them. The, the lime and the bubblegum merge together so beautifully. I'm passionate about this. But sometimes when they go too too full on with the strawberry as well, that overpowers, you have to be like, mm, thank you. Okay. Stop there. You need to know so, what you want. Yeah, you have to, and it's unbelievable. Okay. So that, that would be it. Okay. <laughs> After that very delicate, tiny little meal, we'll send you off to the island, Poppy, and hopefully you won't be looking back thinking you should have eaten more ice cream. No, maybe I'll have two. <laughs> you can never have enough. Poppy, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> so there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening, really, I think. Subscribing to the show boosts it in the charts wherever you're listening and it tells other people that this is a show worth listening to. And it also means you obviously don't miss an episode. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And don't forget that you can sign up for the brand new newsletter at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.